The horrors in Ukraine only get worse. On Friday, Russian forces fired missiles at a train station where thousands of civilians had gathered to flee the fierce fighting in the eastern region of Donbass. At least 50 people were killed, including five children, and around 100 injured. Coming during a week that Western leaders, led by President Biden, accused the Russians of war crimes, and Ukrainian President Zelensky charged the Russians were engaged in genocide, the rocket attack on a train station only underscored the most pressing issue at the moment. What more can the United States and its allies do to stop Putin's aggression? Few have more consistently called for the U.S. to provide more weapons and military aid to Ukraine than Evelyn Farkas, a former top Pentagon official under President Obama. We'll talk to her on this episode of Skullbuggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Vassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. After we saw the uh, horrible images uh, earlier this week of the Ukrainian civilians shot in short range in that suburb of Kiev, it was hard to imagine that we'd see anything, you know, even more stomach churning. And then we learned today about this train station attack. And, I, you know, it is really hard to understand how the Russians could have done this in any way other than deliberately. It's a train station. It's not a military installation. It's obvious that there was something like, what, a thousand civilians there that had gathered to try to get trains to get away from the fighting. And the fact that uh, missiles could be fired and uh, at the station killing so many people, you know, we, we've all seen, you know, controversies about, uh, you know, drone strikes that kill civilians and other bombings uh, in Yemen, for instance, that kill civilians. But in almost every case, they're, you know, the people who are firing those bombs and missiles and drones believe they're going after military targets, or at least they say they are. In this one, it's really hard to see how that could be the case. Where else have we seen this, though, in Syria and in Chechnya? And who has been the perpetrator of these attacks on civilians? Vladimir Putin. So this is his MO. This is the Putin way of war. He is trying to break the spirit of the Ukrainian people. And look, he's miscalculated at almost every step of the way in this war so far And I think he's miscalculating again. I I think this is going to stiffen the resolve of not just the Ukrainian people and its leadership and its military, but of the West, of NATO, and of the United States. Now, the question that we're going to talk to Evelyn Farkas about is, does that translate into sending a lot more military aid and then perhaps taking other steps that so far Joe Biden hasn't wanted to take because of concerns about escalating? I mean, stiffening the resolve is great. I'm not sure the Ukrainian resolve needs to be stiffened much more. It's pretty clear that the country as a whole has risen up in near unison to the uh, Russian aggressors. But that's not going to 
stop Russian missiles and bombs. Uh, it's not going to stop the Russian military in and of itself. There was one positive development that I read about before we uh, taped this podcast, and that was the Slovaks are sending these S-300 anti-aircraft, I think they're Soviet-era era anti-aircraft missile defense systems, and they are able to take down aircraft flying at high altitudes. And so that is a sign that they're sending in uh, heavier and more important uh, weaponry uh, in this fight, but there's a lot more that can be done. You know, there is one thing that Putin is calculating on and that we don't know how it's going to play out yet, and that is that the American public and much of the Western world public does have a certain amount of fatigue that sets in after repeated indignities and repeated massacres. We saw that happen in Yemen. We saw that happen in Syria. We saw that happen in Chechnya, where there were initial rounds of outrage and condemnation. And then as those wars settled into long, grueling, brutal wars, the amount of attention media and otherwise that was paid to them faded. Whether or not that happens in Ukraine is another matter. We do know that just a week or two weeks ago, people in the media business were saying that the level of audience attention to this issue was already declining. So it's unclear whether or not this kind of intense level of attention by the public to what's going on in Ukraine will persist. Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, it's going to become a war of attrition that's going to drag on for quite some time. And, you know, of course, public attention, media attention, it will fade over time because that's the nature of the news business and the nature of our attention spans, right? So the question I think that policymakers have to think about is assume that's the case. What is you know, what is the best route for the U.S. and the West to take in a prolonged, protracted war like this? Yeah, it raises all sorts of uh, difficult questions, because if the Russians are having now pulled out from places like Kiev um, and uh, some of the other bigger cities in, in the north, and they focus all of their efforts in the east and expand some of that territory and then are able to build that land bridge um, from the Donbass to um, Crimea, then you're in a long and difficult and grueling insurgency. And the question is, what kind of assistance will the United States be able to give to, to the Ukrainians fighting that kind of insurgency? And will they ever come to the point that maybe not overtly, but covertly, we have people on the ground who are assisting the Ukrainians um, in that kind of insurgency? And I don't know, those are going to be some very tough questions for Joe Biden um, going forward. And, you know, just one little, I mean, I think the magnitude of, of this is staggering the more you think about it. I mean, we're, we're essentially at a point where Russia has become a pariah state for the West. We still formally have diplomatic relations, but I think they've whittled down to almost, you know, to becoming meaningless at this point. We've sanctioned the country, you know, everybody, we've sanctioned the country's economic, its banks, its uh, oil and gas. I mean, everything 
all the business that we do with Russia is now being disrupted. We're essentially going back, just historical note, you know, for 16 years after the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, the United States had no relations with the Soviet Union at all. And then FDR in November 1933 recognized the government of the Soviet Union, and that began our diplomatic relationship with the country. We've now essentially reversed that. Um, We've gone back to the days, you know, we are going back to the days prior to 1933, where we will have no meaningful relations with you know, one of the, you know, the largest country in landmass in the world, and one that has been a clear superpower. It's pretty staggering to think about. The new Iron Curtain, right? Yeah. Um, so it's pretty stunning. Yeah. Well, before we get to Evelyn Farkas, we do have at least one other item we want to discuss, which is another historic moment, and that is the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, first African American to serve on the Supreme woman. Court. Woman. Uh, first first African American woman, sorry, uh, Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas, of course, precede her. And a very moving ceremony at the White House today as she um, she gave, you know, very, um, a very meaningful talk. It was moving and it was it was unusual. It was different from you know, we've watched a lot of these White House ceremonies uh, when a, a president is touting his new uh, Supreme Court justice, which are always in, in very important moments for presidents, um, you know, both politically, but also in terms of their uh, legacy. And, you know, typically the nominees, the would-be justices, the soon-to-be justices, you know, speak earnestly about uh, their reverence of the Constitution and the rule of law. And, and she did some of that, but she spent the vast majority of her time just thanking people and spoke with a kind of um, humility that I think we've seen throughout this whole process, but also very human, very kind of kind of an every person. I think someone that, that most Americans would be able to uh, relate to, and also a kind of optimism throughout this whole process, you know, maybe you know, belied by her treatment um, in, in the Senate by a few uh, Republicans. But, you know, she had this one line, you know, her parents went to segregated schools and she had this one line where she said that in my family, it went from one generation to go from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States, um, which, you know, was a, I thought, a pretty poignant um, and optimistic uh, note to sound um, in that setting. So it was a good moment, I think. So it might be a little bit of the of a skunk at a party about this. Oddly enough, I mean it was a it was a wonderful ceremony, and and it's like it's really stunning to look at a picture of who's on the Supreme Court now, and to see for the first time in American history it's not majority white men. Uh, the reason I'm a skunk at the party about this is because these post confirmation victory ceremonies at the White House are actually a relatively new thing. There was a time not too long ago when no justice would show up in such an overtly sort of like political environment to kind of tout their confirmation to the Supreme Court because these are two separate you know, branches of government, et cetera, et cetera. And now they do. And to me, 
it's part of the kind of continuing politicization of the Supreme Court and in making it part of the kind of partisan politics and election politics in the United States. And I know it's like completely naive of me to want to go back to the olden days when there was more of a kind of a separation between the institutions. But there's a part of me that wishes that these ceremonies would stop and that we would just kind of go back to a, a more you know, kind of ivory tower sort of version of the Supreme Court. So just uh, in terms, I mean, I certainly remember Trump having ceremonies for Amy Coney Barrett and for Kavanaugh. I don't remember. I thought Clinton did it for uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think it goes back to Clinton, doesn't it? They've been, they've been, yeah, it's been on and off. There, you know, I think there have been a few, uh, like I think Breyer refused to do it. You know, and it's it's been back and forth, you know what I mean? So uh, but it is a kind of and when I say recent development, I mean, like in the last 25 years or something like that, rather than, you know, in the last all that four or five years prior. Yeah, maybe they weren't public ceremonies, but there certainly were very close relationships between presidents and Supreme Court justices. Always. For many, many years. Like I said, like I say, it's it's sort of like maybe naive and wishful thinking on my part. You know, yeah. you know, I, I also hate to be the skunk at the party. Well, actually, Uh-oh, actually, maybe, right. yeah, no, maybe I don't do hate this. being a skunk at the party going. in this particular case. Yeah. But <laughs> I seem to recall that in the uh, one of the first uh, podcasts that we did about the uh, nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson, that we we all kind of uh, tried to figure out how many Republicans would vote for her. Um, mm-hmm. And Mike, you kind of went out on a limb um, yeah. There. What yeah, uh, do we have? I, the, I, we have the I tape, Mark. The, oh, okay. All right. I can, see. What can we're you doing. roll the tape? Yeah. You can expect to see her voted out of committee within about ten days, and then confirmed within fourteen days. So, within a matter of two to three weeks, we will likely see her vote on the floor of the Senate and her confirmed to this seat. Right. And the only question is. How many Republicans will vote for her confirmation? I had previously said eight or nine, which got big pushback from you guys. I'm going to lower that now to five or six, which oh is my God. maybe still oh my on God, the high still side. Six. You can't name them. Name them. All right. Romney, Murkowski, Collins. Uh, Three. And then uh, Portman, Toomey, and Tillis. Okay. Tillis, no way. But no we're going to. Uh, well, no way. Yeah. No way, but we're going right. to uh, we're going to check back in on that. <laughs> okay, right. and here we are checking back in. I will right. say, Isakoff, yeah, that that you were moving in the right direction. I, the trajectory. I, I it was a good trajectory to say here. First of all, <laughs> I will concede that um, I'm not going to ever be Senate Majority Whip. Okay, Uh, you know, my vote counting is uh, not my strongest suit. That said, I was at least half right when I went down. In fact, 60 percent right. I went down to five. I mean, you were you were a third right from your initial estimate. Then you're a half right. You know, but, you know, a mark of a good uh, prognosticator is to recalibrate as information (laughs) comes in. I look, I initially thought like. This ought to be a gimme for Republicans. It's not going to change the balance on the court. There's no reason to vote against her because you're afraid it's going to tip 
you know, the court in one direction that you don't like. Mike, you forget you forget about the high minded reasons that these senators uh, vote, Uh, you know, Fox News hits. uh, fundraising. Yeah, well, I said like every presidential (laughs) candidate and there are, you know, we saw them, you know, Cruz, Hawley, Cotton. Of course, they led the charge. Right. I didn't see a reason for the other, you know, some of the moderates I mentioned, like, you know, Toomey or Portman to vote against her. But, you know, obviously I misjudged. And meanwhile, (laughs) you know, in this in this era, getting three Republicans counts as a bipartisan vote. You know, which is getting one Republican yeah. counts as a bipartisan vote. But I will say, in my defense, going back over time, more than a year ago, I said on this podcast that Katanji Brown Jackson was going to be the next Supreme Court justice. You did, one hundred percent, and I was right about that. So, right. in fact, know, I don't think I'd heard her name. Yeah. Until you right. until uh, you talked about her. So skullduggery listeners, you know, fear not. You will hear many accurate predictions on this podcast and some inaccurate ones. So and accountability. And right. accountability. When, when we're wrong, we own up to it. Yes. Yes, we do. When Isakoff's wrong, we own up to it. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, now we got more serious matters uh, to discuss with our guest, Evelyn Farkas. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Evelyn Farkas, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia under President Obama. Evelyn, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be back. So not great times, though, to talk about what we're going to be discussing here. And we just had the latest uh, horror from Ukraine today with the news that the Russians fired on a train station, killing up to 50 people, including children who were preparing to evacuate the fighting in the eastern region of Donbass. You have been among those calling for more aggressive steps to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians. What is the significance of this recent attack? And do you think it's going to increase or do you think it's going to help your case that more needs to be done to help Ukrainians? So, Michael, the significance of the attack is that it demonstrates further that the Russian government is intent on deliberately attacking the Ukrainian citizenry, and has really no regard for Ukrainian life. And the fact that this, that the train station and the trains are being used to safely evacuate Ukrainians because road transport has been eliminated as a safe option by the Russian military, again, can't be overlooked or disregarded. And the reason we need to now again, look at all the military option and options and all the options, frankly, available to us to stop Vladimir Putin is because he really has no limits on what he might be capable of and in order to achieve his objectives. And so the only way to stop Vladimir Putin, in my estimation today, as fast as possible, is a military defeat. So, Evelyn, realistically, what are the options and how far would you go to achieve that, help the Ukrainians achieve that military defeat? Well, I agree with President Biden that we should not get directly militarily involved, meaning we don't need 
US or NATO personnel fighting the Russians directly. Having said that, everything else we can do indirectly is, as far as I'm concerned, on the table. So from the very beginning, I thought we should be providing them with actionable intelligence. It sounds like our government is doing that, which is fantastic. Uh, we should we should, and we are providing them with equipment that they need in order to essentially stop Russian tanks and stop Russian aircraft. We are providing them with training, very valuable training. I, I believe that's ongoing. We are providing them, I'm guessing, also with some military advice. And so, and that's just on the military side, of course. We're also providing them with economic support and alleviating the stress that's being put on the government right now because of this war. And we are providing humanitarian assistance, diplomatic support, and of course, the sanctions pressure, which is another component of trying to defeat Putin. It's just that it's not the one that's likely to work fast. So I guess the question is, what aren't we doing that we should be doing? Well, I think that we have had public debates about various weapons that we may we could provide to them and we should provide to them. The debates have come out into the open. So I'm thinking specifically about the MiG fighter aircraft, which is the you know, Soviet era aircraft that the Ukrainians know how to fly. I wrote a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. It feels like months ago um, where I made the point that providing those MiGs is no different from providing the Javelin missiles that that take the tanks out or the the stingers, which take the aircraft out of the sky. So that's an example of something we can and should provide. The S-300s, I believe, we're now providing that air defense system to the Ukrainians. These are things we could have provided to them months ago, certainly this past summer when the Russians are raided on the border before. But I'm glad we're providing them now. We just need to get them in as fast as possible. So I recently learned a, a term, uh, which I'm sure you are very familiar with, which is the escalatory ladder. And what I'm particularly curious about is the more we provide support to Ukraine, military support of increasing lethality and increasing potential, you know, aggressive, you know, affirmative capabilities, the more it kind of escalates the situation and potentially gives Putin whatever excuse he needs to either go worse in terms of his behavior in Ukraine or expand beyond the limits of Ukraine. Is that a worry? How much, how far along on the, the ladder of escalation are we in terms of a kind of a more intense conflict between the West and Putin? So I will tell you, I don't like terms like escalation ladder. There's no pretty ladder where the rungs are equally apart from one another and you do one thing and the other person does the other thing. I mean, yes, we do try to respond proportionately when, for example, the Russians launch a cyber attack, then we will launch a proportionate one, right? But when you're talking about trying to defeat Russia militarily, I think that there's no there's no escalatory difference unless you're moving from conventional to chemical or nuclear, which is something that Vladimir Putin himself has done in Syria. As we know, he used chemical weapons there. He's used chemical weapons to assassinate people. He's used nuclear material to assassinate people. So the person who escalates all the time is Vladimir Putin. I don't think that we should deter ourselves by a fear of escalation, because, for example, in the context of a humanitarian no-fly zone where you allow the Russians to keep their, their defense systems, their air defense and their aircraft, but you, but you agree with them that there's a humanitarian zone on the ground. And so therefore, 
based on that logic, you're going to patrol the air above it. And if they fly in or they send a missile in, you will take down that aircraft or that missile. If you shoot down a Russian aircraft or a Russian missile, it doesn't mean all of a sudden there's an, there's an automatic escalation. There are still decisions that policymakers have to make. In 2015, the Turks shot down a Russian aircraft. Now, granted, the Russian aircraft was in their airspace and refused to move when they warned it. But it, the Russians did not automatically escalate. In fact, they de-escalated militarily. They just escalated diplomatically. So I don't like that construct. And frankly speaking, I find that we end up being then deterred from taking action that we need to take in order to stop Putin. Well, so the reason I know that statement, though, or that that construct is because it seems to be a favorite one of the U.S. State Department and the White House. Is that actually your assessment of what's going on there? Are they misreading and misunderstanding the kind of scope of escalation that we're facing? Well, there is a natural fear of escalation. Of course, if you're a policymaker, you have to pay attention to what might cause escalation on your side or the other side and what the dynamic is. So I'm not dismissing escalation per se, but I think you need to take into consideration what your objective is, how much risk of escalation you're willing to take, whether there's a likelihood that you can prevent the escalation. So again, I don't think there's an automaticity to escalation and, and, and I can't describe what that escalation would be necessarily. And if something is important enough to you, then you take the risk of some escalation and take some action to stop, to achieve your objective, right? So I, I, I find that Sometimes we've been too afraid. And, and the reason and, you know, look, I was in the in the Pentagon. I went to the White House Situation Room, you know, uh, multiple times a week when in 2014, 15, when I was in the Obama administration. At that time, President Obama deemed the Javelin system to be escalatory, yet it was a defensive weapon. It's a missile that takes out tanks, but you can't use it to go and attack a country and take and seize land. Right. But. There were people arguing that this would this would be escalatory, that if we if we gave that weapon system to the Ukrainians, the Russians would somehow escalate. And I think you need to take into consideration the balance of military power. So at that point, we said it's not going to impact the balance of military power. Today, we're in a different place where we actually want to balance. We want to impact the balance of military power because we know we can no longer abide Russia doing what it's doing to Ukraine. And some of us believe that Russia needs to be pushed out of Ukraine, that any compromise, any peace agreement that we might put together with Vladimir Putin that would allow him to keep forces in Ukraine would essentially just amount to a ceasefire. Since you raised it, let's go into those debates that took place when you were at the Pentagon during the Obama years, um, because you were one of the hawks. We were one of the most forceful people arguing for providing those Javelin missiles, by the way, not just to Ukraine, but also to Georgia, which had been invaded by the Russians as well. But you got this pushback. As you look back on it now, I gather you think that that was a mistake by the Obama White House not to take your advice about providing the javelins. But do you think it would have made a difference in stopping Putin then and you know preventing the horrors that we're seeing now? Look, I think at the time there were a lot of ways that we were trying to deter Putin. And ultimately, we did 
for some reason, you know, stop him from going farther into Ukraine at the time, because there, there was a time in 2015 when it looked like he might go farther. And indeed, the Ukrainians themselves took back a couple of towns, ones that are now being fought over, like Slovyansk. Um, so I think that the Javelin system would have been a greater deterrent to the, the Russian military, knowing that they were there in large numbers. But to be honest with you today, fast forwarding now to 2020, I mean, it might have been a deterrent back in 2014, 2015. It might have you know, helped in the mix. But now, fast forwarding to 2020, Vladimir Putin had made up his mind. And I'm not I don't know that if he had been faced with the knowledge that there were billions of Javelin missiles being held by the Ukrainians, that that would have changed his mind whatsoever. I doubt it. So again, one weapon system alone isn't going to deter. But at that time, that was key because we noticed that the Russians were deeply impacted politically by the body bags going back to Russia. And again, that it seemed to impact their decision making about whether they would continue to press for more more territory. Why do you think Putin is doing this now? Well, there are a whole range of factors. One, of course, just occupying part of Ukraine and causing trouble for the Ukrainian government in Kiev through the separatist you know, occupation in the in the east didn't achieve his ultimate objective, which is to make sure that there is a government in Kiev that that Moscow controls, that that Putin controls and that there is no democracy in his neighborhood. He wants Kiev firmly in his sphere of influence and under his autocratic kleptocratic system of government. And so the the first plan, the 2014 plan, didn't work out. So he so his his objective is, again, to control the country. So he decided to go for a decapitation. Now, why now? There are a whole host of reasons on the you know international side. He looked at our government and deemed that our government was weak and divided. And indeed, he had a lot to do with that. And he was correct and remains correct. But he underestimated President Biden's resolve. He also vastly underestimated the ability of the transatlantic community and not just the transatlantic community, but the transatlantic transpacific community. So the community of democracies to rally together to counter him. He vastly underestimated the Ukrainian nationalism as well as the will to fight and certainly underestimated President Zelensky. He underestimated the German coalition government, which was new to him and new to all of us. So there's a whole host of things that he underestimated the training that the Ukrainian military received. So there are a whole host of things that he underestimated. Um, but those underestimations fed into his desire to attack. In addition to that, there are the domestic reasons why Vladimir Putin chose this moment. One, he has elections coming up. He feels a need to shore up his popularity. His party is not very popular. Um, he was, is certainly not as popular as he was in 2014, so felt that he needed a boost. He's been alarmed by the demonstrations in Belarus and also in Kazakhstan more recently. So he's worried about democracy and these democratic movements. And then finally, there's the question of his legacy and his mortality. He definitely wants to go down in history as the guy who made Russia great again, you know, recreated the Russian empire, if you will. And his time on this planet may also be shorter than most of us believed because there are rumors that he has cancer. Oh, really? Mm. Didn't know that. Yeah. 
But any any details on that? What kind of cancer? I mean, um, um, uh, thyroid cancer, and I don't know if how deadly that is. Um, and again, it's um, it's been uh, it it has not been reported by any you know mainstream media outlet as of yet. So I only mention it as kind of in the sort of rumor category. But I'm going to forget now. There's a project, Russian speaking, but in English, translated into English or in English as well. You can find it online. They tracked the doctors, the doctors who visited Putin where they traveled. So it's sort of like in the belly cat in vain, if you will. Evelyn, if Putin is facing imminent military defeat and chooses to lash out by using chemical or biological weapons, uh, something that you suggested he might do, what should President Biden's uh, response be? I mean, if you were back uh, in your position at the Defense Department and going to those Situation Room meetings, what would you be advising him about how to respond? I think the easy response is the one that actually President Trump took in Syria when he bombed the facility that actually launched the chemical attack in April of 2017 or 18, I believe it was. That would be the easy, quick response. Of course, it would be complicated because we'd have to see what we would be bombing and what the impact of that would be, but that would be proportionate. That would be kind of what you would expect the administration to do. Obviously, he has already broken so many taboos, and it's my belief that we have not responded you know, firmly enough, and that's why he continues to do what he does. Another op-ed I wrote in the New York Times, and I believe it was February, or January, I said, you know, we unfortunately should have kept up the global drumbeat against Russia in the United Nations and elsewhere after 2014 because of all the things that Russia's done that they have not paid a price for. So, you know, it's hard to say exactly what we should do, but certainly. But it sounds like you're saying that the United States would have no choice but to respond militarily, even if it's proportionate and limited in the way you just uh, described. I think that's right. And certainly the president, the secretary general, everyone that you hear speaking publicly needs to say that because that's how deterrence works. If you don't say that you will use nuclear weapons, if he uses them, then he's more likely to use them. It's the you know crazy calculus of how this all works. So we, we've spoken a lot about the military options, but we haven't discussed uh, the economic sanctions, which have been, at least by a lot of reporting, pretty broad and devastating to the Russian economy and of increasing impact in that economy. Have, have we reached, however, the limit of the sanctions in terms of their usefulness as a tool for resolving this conflict? Is there more that can be done in that space? So, Victoria, I don't think we've reached the limit because we're not looking at a sanctions regime that looks like the one we levied on Iran, although we're getting closer there, and certainly not in terms of enforcement because the oil and gas embargo is not nowhere near total. And then the same goes, of course, North Korea is an even more extreme example of a, a sanctions regime. So there is more that we can do to sanction Russia. And I think the sooner we move away from you know, non-renewable energy or from oil and gas, the better for the world anyway. I mean, this whole conflict on one level drives me crazy because I know that the next the next issues that we're going to have to deal with that are right down the pike are really 
catastrophic ones that stem from the environment. All the refugee flows that we see in Ukraine will pale in comparison to the refugee flows we will see in Africa and other parts of the world when the planet starts to heat up and there are insufficient resources and there's conflict as a result. So, so to answer your question, no, there's a lot more that we can do, but that then also starts to obviously impact our economies. And that's what the, the politicians have been tiptoeing around. But listen, Evelyn, you started out by saying the only route here is to defeat Putin militarily. Sanctions aren't going to do that. War crimes prosecutions are not going to do that. These are long term matters. If I heard you correctly, you know, the only alternative for the West, for the United States, for the Ukrainians right now is to militarily push back the Russians, which requires firepower, not sanctions. Yeah, so let me elaborate a little bit. So the quickest way and the decisive way to defeat Vladimir Putin is military defeat. It's not the only way in the sense that it's possible that sanctions could lead to, you know, elite dissatisfaction and the elites changing him out and putting another elite member in and coming to the realization that they need to let Ukraine go, right? That is a possibility. Possibility, but it's not one that's going to happen fast and it's not as likely to change the calculus to actually mean that Putin is defeated. And even longer, you know, stretch longer term and less likely is, of course, the people in the street and you get a more liberal pro-Western or, or Western friendly government in the Kremlin. So you have to use the economic warfare. The, those sanctions are basically economic warfare because we'd rather make economic war on Russia than military war, e e also indirectly. I mean, we didn't want to use military force. We don't like warfare, but we need the warfare in order to stop Vladimir Putin because we understand his mentality. And so the economic component is partly about punishment and partly about making sure we're doing everything possible to stop this man and his regime and their foreign policy. I'm interested in your view on what sort of military, what would be acceptable for NATO, for the West, and, you know, we can't speak for the Ukrainians, but I'm wondering what a resolution here could be. I mean, if Putin consolidates his control over the Donbass, if he is able to build this land bridge uh, between between the Donbass and, and Crimea and maybe seizes a little more land in the east and then says, OK, I'm done. I'm out of here. What should the response be to that? I mean, is there is there an acceptable resolution to this that allows Putin to take more territory than he had when he when he invaded on February 24th? That's his plan right now. That is exactly what now he wants to do. He wants to seize Donbass and he wants to link Crimea with Donbass and call it a day. Right now, that would not be acceptable to Vladimir Zelensky or the Ukrainian people. And therefore, it's not acceptable to us in the West because we are done with the days when we forced you know, countries to, we force sovereign decisions on other countries, right? So we are supporting Ukraine in their effort to basically defend their territory and even reclaim it. And so at this moment in time, that kind of compromise would not be acceptable unless the Ukrainian government decided it was acceptable. And again, I think the reason we will see fighting going on now for more weeks and months is because both sides think they can win. Neither side thinks they're going to lose. And for President Zelensky, he's a democratically elected leader. 
And in light of all these atrocities and the hatred and the upset, you know, the turmoil in Ukrainian society, he's he's going to be hard pressed to give an inch of the territory at this stage of the game. So if the war drags on, of course, and if we don't provide sufficient support, you know, or somehow the Ukrainians lose their will, then that the compromise you describe is possible. But if Vladimir Putin stays in the Kremlin, as I said before, that compromise will just be a ceasefire. So one of the real compliments that the uh, Biden administration has been getting in terms of its engagement with the, the with the Ukraine war has been its use of intelligence and its willingness to to essentially disclose intelligence that you, you probably never could have imagined a administration doing before. Do you think that this is the the kind of the new normal in terms of how U.S. intelligence is disclosed and conducted? What more can we look forward to in the coming weeks and months? Victoria, I hope so, because, you know, it drove me crazy when I would be in the White House in the Situation Room and we 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 couldn't even you know, declassify or reclassify something to share with NATO allies, much less with the Ukrainians who were getting clobbered by the Russians, you know? So it really held us back in terms of our immediate response to the Russians. We might've been able to much more quickly talk, for example, about the MH17 bombing, you know, uh, sorry, missile attack that the Russian, that was launched with a Russian weapon given to the Ukrainians separatists and controlled by the Russian military. So the Russians shot down the civilian aircraft, you might remember it was in the summer of 2014. And they essentially got away with making up all kinds of lies about it because we didn't show what intelligence we had at the time. So, you know, the because having a response in real time does, does make a big difference as we've seen. Otherwise the lies linger and people believe them. And by the time you, you want to clear it up, like the Dutch did after their investigation of that shoot down, Nobody remembered what the shootdown was anymore. You know, as much as there's been so much worldwide outrage about what the Russians are doing, there are still a lot of countries there that are not fully on board. I mean, the Germans largely, but when it comes to energy sales from Russians, from Russia, they're not willing to put an end to them. The Indians, the Chinese, you know, wouldn't go along with kicking the uh, Russians off the uh, uh, UN Human Rights Council. What would you tell or say to the Germans, to the Indians, to the Chinese and other countries out there that are not standing with the rest of the West against Putin's aggression? Well, it's really the international order that's at stake. So if you like you like economic prosperity, if you like economic development, whether you whether you like the obviously somebody doesn't in your house. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Essentially, the international order is at stake. So the Chinese may not like what we do internationally and they may not want a fully fledged democracy in China, but the international order does exist and does provide them with prosperity and provide some rules of the road. And even if you know not all countries, including the United States, obey the rules of the road to the letter all the time, um, it, it 
has kept us out of a global World War III. And so that's really what's at stake for everyone. For the countries that are democracies, I mean, we really are in a standoff, democracies versus autocracies. And Russia wants to take us back to the 19th century sphere of influence. You know, large powers dictate to small powers. And he would like to weaken our democracy. He would like to destroy our democracy. He'd like to destroy NATO. And if he prevails in Ukraine, he will turn to Moldova, he will turn to Georgia, and then he will turn to the NATO allies that were members of the Soviet Union, previously the Baltic states. He will challenge NATO, as I said, because he wants to eliminate NATO. And he will continue to attack our democracy, which he has not stopped doing. And specifically about the Germans and their need for, or their decision that they still need Russian oil and gas? Well, specifically the Germans, they really, I don't want to look back because it doesn't do anyone any good. But, you know, we were working in the Obama administration for so many years to try to come up with alternatives to wean them away from Russian oil and gas, the Germans and others. And they frankly, you know, put their economic interests before their actual national security interests. (laughs) So, they the Germans need to figure out a plan and maybe we need to help them with this, you know, obviously in terms of finding the energy that they need, but they need to they need to pivot. So I have just one last question, which is about the war that hasn't happened uh, at the beginning of this. A lot of people were predicting cyber attacks, both on Ukraine and possibly spilling out into the rest of the world, the United States, Western Europe. It doesn't seem to have happened why? What's going on? Should we be worried that that's the next front? Well, my understanding is that actually there's been quite a lot of cyber activity. Uh, The Russians have launched attacks, but we have thwarted them. We have helped the Ukrainians thwart them. In some cases, we and or the Ukrainians responded. And, And the administration, as you know, has also put out a lot of warnings and trained and engaged with with corporate entities in the United States and then also overseas with allies to make sure that our defenses were strong. I do think also that the Russians are perhaps more deterred in this space than we realize because everything I hear from our government, and I'm not a cyber expert, is that we are better at cyber than the Russians, that our capabilities are you know, stronger which would tell you then that if you're Russian, you want to think twice before you escalate in that domain. All right. Well, um, Evelyn, I want to uh, thank you uh, for joining us uh, and um, sharing your insights. Obviously, uh, there's going to be no quick end to the horrors of this war. uh, So we'll definitely want to uh, stay in touch. Well, thanks for having me on. 